Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Android Faithful, your weekly source of news, hardware, apps, discussion of lawsuits, discussion of abandoning the platform that we talk about every week. It's all happening this week. It's insane. I'm Ron Richards and joining me as always, Quint Whitdow. And of course, Michelle Ramon. Welcome, welcome everybody to our 19th episode. Uh, it is November 14th. Android Faithful number 19, and we're super, super excited to welcome a very special guest this week, Mr. Yanko Ruckers. How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you all? Good. Welcome to the good. welcome to the show. Um Yanko, you are of uh your newsletter called Low Pass, correct? That's correct, yes. Yep. And what what can you tell us about Low Pass? What can people what can people uh get who 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 subscribe? It's a weekly newsletter. That's all about sort of the intersection between technology and entertainment. So I write a lot about streaming. I write a lot about sort of the hardware that makes that possible in the in living room devices and so forth. I also write about AR and VR and all kind of the fun things. And yeah, it's a weekly newsletter. You can subscribe for free. There's a paid tier as well. Always appreciate people paying for it, but you can also get it for free. Excellent. And of course, the reason why we had you join is because uh, you caused quite a, quite a bit of a stir with some with with a with an exclusive scoop last week um, as it relates to Amazon and Android. Uh, so we wanted to, we invited you on to talk about it. Um, so it was pretty shocking. Michelle shared the news with us uh, last week when it got posted uh, that Amazon is ditching Android for Fire TVs and smart displays. So Yanko, tell us what what, what you what you reported about. Yeah. So this has been a story. So been long in the making i actually heard some 
rumors about that a couple of years ago, but I could never quite nail it down. And I wasn't sure if it was real. And um, stepping back, I mean, people, not everybody knows that. People who just casually use some Android device or some Amazon devices rather may not even realize that because it looks so different. But if you have a Fire TV or if you have an Echo Show or even a, a Fire tablet, all of those essentially ran Android under the hood, right? So they use Google's uh, open source, the open source components of Android AOSP, build their own Fire TV, uh, Fire OS on top of it, how they call it, but it's basically Android with a couple of changes and sort of a different skin on top. And that has been going on for a couple of years or basically for a decade, I think, even at this point. So Fire TV, the first devices came out in 2014, which was the same year when Amazon tried to make a phone that didn't go so well. So they've been doing a lot of things in Android. And over the years, they had some issues with that, with Google and all those things. We might go into that a little bit. But essentially now they're t- looking to take a make a queen break from that. And next year, they're going to come out with the first Fire TV device that's going to run a completely new operating system. They're going to go for a flavor of Linux where they're basically uh, adapting Linux Linux with, with their own changes again, uh, ditching Android completely. The first Fire TV device, uh, again, is coming out next year, as I reported last week. And now we're even getting word that some other stuff may have come out even sooner. So, uh, Janko, quick question. You reported uh, on an internal development name for this OS. Do you know if this will be branded still as Fire OS or Fire TV, or do you know if that branding will change? I honestly have no idea because we haven't heard anything official from Amazon about this, and I've asked them and they just didn't comment uh, or didn't get back to me. Um, so these these internal project names, obviously, they don't usually get adopted. So the internal name is Vega at this point, Vega OS or Project Vega. Um, Maybe they will still call it Fire Fire OS and just say, "Oh, this is the new Fire OS." Who knows? They could maybe do a complete rebrand for that. I'm not entirely sure, but everything under the hood is basically changing. And why do you think they're making those changes? So I think there's two big reasons for that. One of them is, and I, I sort of mentioned that a little bit already, that over the years they had pretty pretty dicey relationship with google so especially in the tv space amazon was sort of a latecomer so they had did have these fire dv dongles and, and sticks and all that out like close to a decade ago starting in 2014 and some of them did pretty well but when other companies when roku and when google and everybody was trying to make smart tvs or partner with smart tv makers amazon was really having a hard time they announced a couple of partnerships was all these brands you never had heard of but they never could get any big brands on board. And so I did a lot of reporting about that over the years as well. And it turned out that Google was using their own sort of commitments and, and requirements that people have to sign in order to make Google devices, whether it's phones or Android devices, rather, whether it's phones, whether it's TVs, whether it's anything else that's powered by Google's version of Android and has access to all the Google apps. You need to sign anti-fragmentation agreements and basically commit to Google that you will not use a forked version of Android on any of your other devices if you also want to run Google's version on any of whatever devices. And so that's a big issue, especially uh, for, for some of these bigger companies that maybe make smart TVs, but then also make phones and sell maybe many millions more phones. And they really need Google for that because if you have an Android phone without Google apps, it's, it's basically worthless, right? Right especially in Western markets. 
So Amazon was going to these companies and saying, we really want to make a, a smart TV and have, have it powered by Fire, Fire TV OS or Fire OS. And they were saying, well, we would love to do that too, but Google just let us, doesn't let us do it. And so for years, that was blocked and was going back and forth. And even there was an uh, antitrust issue or investigation in India at some point. And now it seems like just recently, just over the last, uh, I think, two years or so, these two parties may have come to an agreement or did come to an agreement where now you have uh, Fire TVs from Hisense, from TCL. But this conflict goes back way longer. And I think that was one of the reasons that Amazon looked into maybe just moving away from Android, finding an alternative. So that was one big reason. But there's also technical reasons. Like if you use somebody else's operating system and you have to always wait for them to release it and then you have to customize it, you're kind of always behind the curve a little bit, right? So, and and then the last the last thing is that some of these devices, like smart displays, don't actually need all the stuff that's in Android for mobile phones, right? So all these like modem code and whatnot, everything that's built for mobile devices essentially, and is part of Android doesn't really make sense if you have a smart display that basically doesn't even run any apps but gets everything from the cloud right and and you made that point too that even even google had moved away from android for things right. like the nest right. next and stuff like that running fuchsia and, and um that sort of thing but you know big question a question that some folks were asking in, in the chat also which question on my mind so if they're going to make their own operating system move away from android where are the apps going to come from that that is a good question i mean <laughs> so I think you have to look at it just as look at these different types of devices. So smart displays don't really run native apps or don't really run many native apps. It's mostly coming all from the cloud. So it's fairly easy for them to switch to something new. Um, smart TVs, again, there is apps on smart TVs, but I think, and, and Michelle, you might know the exact number or maybe you all know the exact number. I think Google at some point said that they have 5,000 apps in their app store for their TV that is not a whole lot when you compare it to the millions and millions of apps that are there for phones, right? So getting a couple of key publishers on board to maybe support a new operating system if you're going to ship tens of millions of devices is not that hard of a stretch because people make apps for Samsung TVs, maybe Max for LG TVs, and they all run different operating systems. Um, so that is also a transition that shouldn't be that hard. The biggest thing and the thing that I also honestly know the least about is how is this going to play out for fire tablets because obviously they have the amazon app store on there there's tons of android apps on the amazon app store uh games and, and whatnot and people have very different expectations if you have a tablet you you're going to download not just five apps but maybe 50 and you have 50 people and they all download 50 different apps so you have demand for thousands and thousands of apps so how that's going to look like and what they're ultimately going to do there, I I just don't know yet. And have they they you mentioned in your in your article though that they have been telling they're doing web forward apps and telling developers to work in React Native. Yes. Right. So that's basically the, the big change here. And my 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 feedback I have gotten is that that's actually could help some developers because especially when it comes to people who maybe it's it's not just about building phone apps, but really they target these smart TVs. And there are, is all these different platforms. And some are web-based, some are native, like Roku has their own thing, BrightScript or whatever it's called. All these things are different platforms. So 
having having an environment like React Native where you can target multiple endpoints and then basically build a React Native app that, that's going to be on Android and one on iOS and then one on these new smart TVs possibly with just small changes for, 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 for those devices, um, that's going to make potentially the life of developers easier. Well, when you're a, you're a resident developer, how do you feel about that? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of times, even on you know proper you know GSM you know uh, contracted phones, a lot of a lot of publishers will find it easier just to write a web app, write a mobile web app, and just load it up inside of a native shell. It, it and in a lot of cases, that's totally fine, and that's all that they need. And so, as you said, Yanko, like this makes it a lot easier for them, and also. Generally speaking, I think when you come at it on a web approach, you get a lot more of the form factor adaptability for free because that's kind of just naturally a thing that happens on the web and, and, and mobile web is that you just build in adaptive fluid layouts. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I another thing about the Amazon store is that, you know, because without having the Google Play services, a lot of those apps get a little bit hamstrung. I, I mentioned a long time ago at one of my previous jobs, we stopped supporting the Amazon app store just because the experience was worse and it just caused us, you know, extra resources to support it. So I think for Amazon, if they can move people in this direction and create like a viable, you know, user you know, friendly, user adequate enough experience, it makes a lot of sense. Because I, why would you continue to invest and, you know, <laughs> wrestle with Google for an inherently bad experience, at least for the tablets, and, and at least for the tablets. Um, and I think, as you said, smart displays just make so much more sense. Yeah, I think, Yanka, you brought up a good point about how Amazon is more likely to be able to achieve this shift, you know, painlessly for users on the Fire TV side, because, when it comes to the TV apps, there's not that many apps that you just actually need. So, and what you really need to convince developers to develop and create apps for TV devices and just devices in general is volume. And Amazon has lots of that. They can probably guarantee that we're going to sell tens of millions of these devices because they already do for their current models. The tablet side is a di little different story. Um, that that might be a little tougher sell. And I know like. It's, it's, I don't know exactly how popular it is, if it's actually a number that Amazon really cares about, but how many users actually buy these tablets and, and sideload Google apps and like whatever apps they want onto it. Um, it must be enough for them to not actively try to block it because they could have stopped sideloading years ago if they really wanted to, but they don't. They kind of, it kind of feels like they know it's there and they just let it happen because they know people will at least get into Amazon apps and still use those apps if they wanted to. I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on like that side of things, the the tinkerer, the power user side. It's kind of funny. Once my story was out, one of the first comments on almost every social platform was, but what about sideloading? What about Cody? And all these things, right, that people do with their, with their uh, Fire TV sticks and whatnot. And then obviously on, on the tablets as well. And it's a good question, but I mean, obviously it's, I would, imagine that amazon doesn't care much either way because yes it helps them probably to sell some of these devices but they're also not going to make any money if you sideload something on it so them not stopping people is, doesn't mean that they necessarily condone it they, I, I would imagine they just don't care that much about it I'm I'm super. I mean, I'm super curious what the long tail support for those dev existing devices will look like, right? So, like, you know, there's going to be a transition period where Amazon's going to be trying to roll this out, but then also supporting both. It's just it's going to be messy and kludgy. But 
you mentioned Yanko and um, that it looks like, you know, you said this is going to start rolling out next year, but uh, I think report as of today that Amazon is already starting to roll it out on some devices. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this or what you make of this. Is, is this, yeah, yeah, is yeah. this rollout actually the project Vega that you were referring to, or is this something else or. I, I, I pretty much think that it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, I, this story kind of caught me by surprise. The, the 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 news itself didn't catch me by surprise. I did go out this weekend to buy an Echo Show Five that tells you something a little bit about it. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, well, the, the new the news being that the Verge bro, you know posted that the latest Echo Show Five uh, is running uh, not Fire OS but something listed as OS one dot one. Right, right, right. Yeah. So uh, I I will I will write a little. Bit, I'm I'm in the process of writing a little bit more about that for for this week's newsletter, my my newsletter. Uh, so if you want to get the full update, uh, subscribe on lowpass.cc. I, I mean, if you read those stories and Dave Dave Zatz was the first one who who found it, he he found some pretty good clues. It's not just the uh, OS number, but it's also if you look at the open source uh, disclosures on Amazon's website where they have to publish source code for open source apps and components and whatnot they're using. It looks very different. And once you start to look a little closer at that, you will notice even more differences, but, yeah, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And I'll give you credit, Yanko. Reading your reading your article uh, on lowpass.cc, where people can go sign up for your newsletter, which is fantastic. Um, reading your article, I was impressed by you know just the the combination of it seems as if you were, you you spoke to some people, but also looking at job listings and things like that as you piece things together in this age of clickbait. And hot takes and reblogging and Michelle, as you know, taking somebody else's tweet and turning an article around it. Like I was really impressed as someone who like went to school for journalism. I'm really impressed to see. Oh wow, cool! We can talk to an actual journalist. So bravo! <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where, again, I had heard about it a long time ago. I talked to a few folks. I think like in 2019 about it, and everybody was like, "Yeah, I heard some rumors, but I don't know if that's actually a real thing." Um, but they might be thinking about this. And so I didn't know if it was actually happening or, I mean, companies explore all kinds of things. They start projects, they stop them, they kill stuff. Right. Um, and, and very recently I suddenly heard something again and started me, I started to look into it again. And once you, you know, you hear like one thing and then you look around and you find another thing somewhere. I found a mention of the project name somewhere, I think. And then, once I had the project name, suddenly all these job offers came and like filled in the blanks. So it's 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 a fun puzzle piece sometimes, journalism. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice that it works out, right? For sure. So yeah. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, Yanko, I know you're short on time and we want to thank you for making time out of your day to join us. Um, any other kind of uh any other notes on this Amazon story or things to look out for or things to look for in the future, aside from your analysis of the show five? Or do you want to plug anything else before we say goodbye? Um, no, I think, I mean, it, it is an interesting story. I'm also looking forward to seeing how that's actually going to play out because you, you have to imagine. So if they, they rolled it out on a device where they don't need to have much input from developers, uh, one one of the things that was in the stories today was that there's no Netflix on that device, which tells you a little bit about that. Maybe it doesn't work with everything yet. Um but once they bring it even just to, to a TV or a t- uh, fire stick or something next year, they need to tell developers about that beforehand. So right now, Amazon hasn't said anything yet, and I hope they would change that, but who knows. But I would imagine 
even months before they ship something, they have to tell developers about it and they have to really tell the world what they're actually doing there. Yeah. And that's going to be an interesting time for sure. So I'm look, looking forward to reading about it, looking forward to covering it, and it's going to be an interesting time next year. Excellent. Well, we are all subscribed at lowpass.cc, and we encourage everybody watching and listening to the show, go to lowpass.cc, sign up for Yanko's newsletter, uh, get all the great get all the great content that you're putting out. Um, and Yanko, thank you so much for joining us. We really, we really, really appreciate it. Oh, sure. So, Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great night. You too. All right. Well, that is quite the news, guys, wasn't it? I, I did that. That, that yeah. Amazon thing was 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 truly shocking. Right? It's a huge move. Huge move. Well, and th- um, that's not the only move going on in the world, too, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, they're not the only ones who are ditching support for Android. Um, another company that has long been saying that they're going to be ditching Android seems to finally be going through with it. Huawei is uh, seemingly ditching Android app support with their the next version of their. Um, operating system called Harmony OS Next. So for a bit of context, Huawei announced uh, Harmony OS back in August of 2019. At the time, they said uh, it was going to be their own operating system for not just their phones and tablets, but also smartwatches, TVs, and all their other IoT products. Now, the key difference they said between Harmony OS and Android was that um, Android uses a monolithic kernel. Um, in other words, they use Linux. But Harmony OS is said to use a microkernel, kind of like Google's Fuchsia OS. And as its name implies, a microkernel is designed to be much smaller in the number of lines of code involved. And generally, they're designed such that, you know, any processes that need to be run are run in the user space as like normal processes, kind of like regular apps are. And the reason for this is to make things more secure and more resilient to things like drivers crashing. The downside is that this kind of design can be a little more complicated as a lot of message passing isn't done in the kernel mode. So that's be like moving between the kernel mode and the user mode. And it's also the fact that, you know, if you're building something based off of Linux, that thing is decades old and it's very mature. So um, building something from scratch, a new operating system from scratch takes quite a bit of work. And so when Huawei first released the Harmony OS 2.0 beta back in 2021, um, developers quickly found out that it was virtually identical to previous versions of EUMUI, which was Huawei's, their, their name for their previous fork of Android. And in fact, that version of Harmony OS still supported Androids at runtime and still supported installing Android APK files, in other words, Android apps. So a lot of people thought, does this mean that Harmony OS isn't actually its own operating system and it's just another skin on top of Android? Well, those claims are finally being put to rest, kind of, uh, because earlier this year at the Huawei Developer Conference, Huawei said that their next version of Harmony OS, Harmony OS Next, is completely dropping support for Android apps. You can't install Android APK files anymore. Instead, you got to install their own version of app install files called HAP, Harmony OS Ability Packages. We don't really know exactly what architectural changes they made under the hood and exactly how different it is from the previous version of Harmony OS, but the fact that you can't install Android apps at all is a big deal because it means that developers will have to port their apps to this new platform in order to support it. And there is a recent report on the South China Morning Post about how a lot of Chinese tech firms are scrambling to hire software developers so that they can port their apps to Huawei's new um, Harmony OS Next platform. And as for what implications this will have for the broader ecosystem, uh, right now this is only being tested in China. And uh, you know because Huawei still sells a boatload of products in China, and uh, there's no doubt that they'll entice a lot of mainland Chinese developers to port their apps onto the platform. But as for whether other Chinese smartphone makers like Oppo, uh, Vivo, et cetera, will embrace Harmony OS Next on their own smartphones, I think there'll be some challenges involved because they'd have to right now use either Huawei's high silicon chips. They have to create their own chips 
that support Harmony OS next, or they have to wait for like Qualcomm or MediaTek to add support for the OS. And then uh, another challenge is that Huawei would need to make a major push outside of China to first get market share on devices. They'd have to first like sell a whole bunch of Huawei devices running Harmony OS next to get foreign developers interested in porting their apps to the platform. So I think, you know, there's no, there's no cost for immediate concern on like Google's end in, in, in terms of like what Harmony OS next means for the future of Android. But uh, the fact that another major player is, you know, abandoning Android is still something to keep an eye out on. I mean, is this the next iteration of fragmentation, right? Like we're going to see, like now we're going to see OS fragmentation and we're going to see like, you know, multiple operating systems out there and developer, like it, it, it's it's bad enough between iOS and Android to now factor in whatever Amazon's doing and now whatever Huawei's doing. And then is this, is, is Samsung going to, well, Samsung probably won't because they're getting, you know, they're so in bed with Google. But like if another upstart gets the idea and go, wait a minute, do we really need Android? And is this also a condemnation or a statement on the tech debt, like the the point Yanko made in his article about Amazon, that Android over the past decade has built up. Like, is Android just too messy now? Yeah. You know, this also actually is a potential threat to Apple because yeah. um, Apple sells a boatload of devices in China and there's nothing really tying down users in China to a particular operating system or a platform. Like, they're much more likely because everything is done through WeChat as a super app. It's a lot easier for users to switch between devices. So if Huawei goes its own way and, you know, ships a whole bunch of devices with this new operating system, it could be a big threat to both Apple and Google in China. Mm. As for whether or not they'll take that threat outside of China, you know, I think there's still a huge hurdle to be overcome because of the dominance of Google Play and the Apple App Store. Yeah. So, well, um, this is actually an interesting segue to uh, talk about the Google Play Store, right, Wynn? Because some some stuff happened there as well. I mean, talking about ditching the artifice or the business side of Google. So I'll start with a more level-headed, you know, communication of a recent post on November 9th from the Android Developers Google blog. And this was more from the more or less the Google Play team, which to be fair is very distinct from the Android engineering team. So before I go into that, so we talked a bit when the show first started about some kind of a lot of moves that and a lot of programs and initiatives and extra requirements that Google Play is going to enact in order to basically ensure high quality apps on the Play Store. So as much as we love Android as an open platform, it is it has come to light in recent years about the cesspool of app farms, you know, malware and you know just bad software, bad actors on the Google Play Store and it's an image that, of course, is very hard to shake, especially when in comparison to the competition who has their lovely walled garden. And so Google has really been making a push to show that they're working on increasing, you know, security and quality. And, you know, as a developer, a lot of that feels like, you know, if a lot of it feels kind of, you know, reasonable. We talked about this in July, but um, so there's like a number of things in this blog post. So we'll talk about the verification requirements. We talked about this in July about how now even if you're a little indie dev, you're going to need to get yourself a dunce number, which is basically a business registration number, for instance. And you're going to have to verify information like your legal name. and Have either of you tried to ever get a dunce number, by the way? 
I have. Yeah. I did for because because iOS actually for my iOS life I need it. It is it so. is an enormous pain in the butt and I'm actually in the process of just trying to update my address in our Duns number oh. and it's nearly <sighs> impossible. So whatever. The, 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 <laughs> so for those who don't know Duns is a Dun and Bradstreet which I don't know why mm-hmm. they do but it's kind of like a external verification that the business yeah. is real, it's legit kind of verification thing and it's the kind it's the kind of thing where if you are just, you know, kind of messing around you're going to hit that and then you're going to get basically hit a wall because you're like well I'm not going to go through these hoops to do this right so it's a way to yeah. it's a way to separate the real people from the the, the I don't say fake yeah. but from the 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 not as not as dedicated I guess you know so. it it feels a little bit like a trans uh for you know like credit system like tra- uh trans union experience levels of usefulness versus pain in the assness but I mean, like I said, um, as an iOS developer, I had to get one like years ago. So I had one 10 years ago, which means that if I ever wanted to update it, I probably would have to go through the same pain that Ron did. But I think we all kind of agreed that, okay, it's not as fun anymore. It feels less hobbyish or enthusiast friendly or light to get into. But okay, Android's a big platform now. It's the biggest mobile operating system in the world. Sure, we'll grow up and we'll be responsible. So part of this kind of update is that, okay, we're, they're going to start, you know, uh, along with these requirements, they're going to start letting developers, current developers pick what day by which you would like to, what deadline you want basically to get your information verified. If you don't pick a date, they're going to pick it for you. feels like school. Um, And there's like other things that are reasonable, sort of. Um, They also announced that they're going to have increased investment in app review. And basically the global review teams will now be taking more time to assess apps and basically kind of determine whether an app is trying to provide a experience of quality to a user versus deceiving or defrauding them or, you know, any kind of other nefarious purposes. Hot take on this. When I first read this, like, oh my God, app reviews will take forever now. And that was kind of one thing that, you know, again, being an Android developer versus an iOS developer was really fun for years because they have like a week long review and approval process where we just push, you know, updates up and up to production and things get, uh, you know, pushed out in like I a few say hours. The, the second worst thing in app development in my experience after <laughs> Dunn's number is dealing yeah. with an iOS app review and and God forbid it gets kicked back or there's any problems it's like yeah. oh it's a nightmare like Google has been so much better uh, you know through their tools through their automated tools and things like that and so I, I get why they would do this but it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how it plays out for sure. Uh, yeah they, they did try to say oh we really don't anticipate any significant changes to the overall app review timelines and there I think they tried to say that they're going to focus on a smaller portion of apps where review is really important, for example, for apps designed for children or that request certain device permissions, you know, things that are really, you know, very maybe personal identifying information or just very valuable information or permissions that an app is asking for, they're going to take a little bit deeper review. So if you're asking more of the user or kind of a, a bigger risk to the user, the Google App Store will just make sure, you know, give you an extra look down and make sure that you're not doing anything you're not supposed to, which, okay, fair enough. But I mean... Yeah, promise that they're not, it's not going to take longer, but we'll see. And furthermore, a general, you know, connecting users to great trustworthy apps, basically saying we're really committed to making, you know, making sure that we only have as much high quality content slash apps as possible, and also surfacing these high quality apps, high quality content, and also specifically surfacing local regional content so that they can connect users with what they really want, which is all fine and good. All right, here's the thing that really pissed me off. There is there is a new requirement for personal developer accounts. So any any of you who have not who do not have an active personal developer account, if you are creating a new app and you want to be able to publish that app to the the general public, 
you will now need to basically have a closed test, which is basically a closed beta, where people specifically voluntarily um, join your beta program, usually with a sign up URL or by submitting your email, something like that. And you have to have as a personal developer account, by the way, this is not organizations, this is personal developer account, you have to have a minimum of 20 testers opted in for a continuous 14 days before you can even push your app to production. So the first, so I told a bunch of my Android fam this, and I think the majority of people were like, this dumb, like, this is real dumb. This is real stupid. Um, and I don't know. So Ron, you know, you are a, you know, you have a, a side business, you have Scorbit. If this, if, if you were starting Scorbit today, what would your reaction to this be? Well, th- this, this is complicated. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, because the, the, I, I feel the, 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 my point of view probably isn't great because we had 20 beta testers and we were test we oh, okay. were testing you know longer than 2 weeks before we launched mm-hmm. right so like we we had mm-hmm. a pretty good network of people we trusted that we brought in but it still it takes time and work to recruit yeah. those people the day it, so it seems like the days of coding an app yeah. running you know running it through its paces and then putting it out there in a fast to market kind of method or over based on this, you know, like, and if you're, I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of my buddies have kids who like high school kids who in basement in in their basement, tinkered away, try to learn to do stuff and then published an app and felt like this like total sense Mm -hmm. of accomplishment that's gone now. Right. Because no indie, you know, no indie dev or a kid in their basement are going to get 20 people for two weeks to give, go through a testing cycle. Yeah. So yeah, th- this is inc- incredibly hostile to, to indie devs, and, yeah. and you're a company, right? right? Scorbit is a company. Yeah. This is for personal dev accounts. This makes no right. sense. And so, and and I think um, I I one of the people that gave me feedback was a very good friend who is has both been a QA tester and a professional senior dev, and she asked, you know, in in, a, in her kind way, asked, so is there a process to hook up, you know, devs with a pool of testers, or is Google planning on just not having much in the way of indie devs? Well, to you know, if you want, if you thought that Google might be helping out with this, no. If you go to the support page, which Michelle linked when he you know, covered this on his Twix account. If you go to the support page, basically they're like, hey, by the way, the most common way to recruit testers is to use your personal and professional networks. Reach out to your friends, your families, your colleagues, your classmates, basically just get anybody who knows you to beta test your app. So I, I, this is just, this is just the most ridiculous thing to me. I am really mad. And yes, this is basically, it's either at the, at, in the best case, this is the most ineffective, performative you know, requirement to get high, to get app quality up, because I'll tell you one thing, even if you have beta testers, you're, if you're, you're lucky if you do get constructive, actionable feedback, you know, from them. Like some people, I mean, I, I'm a beta tester on several apps in, and I'll, I'll own to it. I very, very rarely give feedback. I just give feedback when something terrible happens. And the idea from them is that, okay, well, and, and they say, they, they, what did they say? In the blog post, they said something like, well, you know, we're trying to increase app quality and quote, in fact, apps that use our testing tools have an average three times the amount of app installs and user engagement compared to those that don't. So that all sounds really well and good, but I call f- bullshit on this. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to, I'll, I'll, that's my one F-bomb for the There you um, go. We'll, we'll let it go. We'll do, so, I'm so noting it down for the audio edit. There it is. <laughs> so Mate- our good friend Mateo suggested I say frolicking ferrets. So that's just a bunch of frolicking ferrets BS. <laughs> and I say that because they present this with absolutely no correlation. And I would, I, as, as someone who's worked at big companies, I strongly believe that if you're telling me that closed testing results in three times the app stalls and user engagement, that's probably because that company already has 
hundreds of thousands or millions of users. And yes, in that case, you do tend to start relying on closed testing because the amount of people that are using your app, you're going to have a bigger percent hit if something terrible happens, something cataclysmic happens. So of course, I would guess that apps that already have a significant user base probably do use closed, closed testing and do have you know so much more engagement in app installs. Again, big. this is probably mostly talking about big companies, not individual personal accounts. And I mean, and there's no sense in this article of accountability. Like, yes, yeah, so I think I was reading through Michelle and Michelle got a lot of really great uh, comments. And one person was like, well, I'm just going to start up two, you know, 20, you know, fake Gmail accounts and 20 emulators, which sure, but it, if there is no accountability, then it's just performative. It's just a pain in the ass and just adding load to developers. As you said, you know, Ron, closed testing if you're actually trying to do it right the way they they want you to and to like, you know, identify users that would use your app and, and actually get good feedback, that takes effort. That takes communication, like triaging certain coordination. things. Like, and coordination. Lord, know, Lord knows talking someone through someone who's never been a tester through getting in like it, it, it that it's it that's writing bugs, that's challenging yeah. in and of itself as well, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Michelle, you saw a ton of engagement on this post, right? Yeah, that's something I wanted to actually wanted to bring up. Like I've been following, you know, Google Play announcements and like regulation changes, their requirements changes for many, many years now. And generally the kind of reaction I could like divide into like two categories. There's like the kind of user who's like always kind of vocally anti-Google, who's like on like Reddit's <laughs> yeah. Android dev, who mm -hmm. are like against anything, you know, Google does. I'm not saying they have they don't have in, they have valid reasons to do that, right? There's like a lot of things that change that, you know, you could say are not good for indie devs. And they constantly complain that, you know, Google is killing off indie app development. But I think this change is like the first time in a long time where I've seen like users I who I don't normally see complain about Google Play policies start vocally complaining about it. Like I've gotten so much feedback from users, developers within companies with outside of, you know, it's just doing it on their own, just complaining about this change. And it really does feel like the, a lot of users don't like. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I don't want to get to just reading other people's responses, but here they are, you know, like, you know, why Google hate developers so much? Um, That's the feeling. Uh, th that yeah. seems super annoying for young people, indie devs starting yes. out. Uh, if this is real, new developers just won't release on Android. Um, yes. So now we have to generate 20 fake Google accounts, create 20 emulators and have ChatGPT do write up for our testing process. Yes. Great. Right. Uh, 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 so pay fi so pay $5 to Fiverr to get this requirement. Got it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Which basically means that this means nothing. What if I don't like, know 20 testers, yeah. right? Like, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah this is. It, it, it either is just is just a way to smack down indie devs and they don't care about indie devs anymore. And and not only that, but also if you're just if you're switching careers, I know a lot of people who went to, you know, boot camps and are trying to get into development. A great way to build your portfolio, even if you don't have professional experience, is to release your own damn app and show what you can do. Yep. And I mean, certainly you can still do that with a closed beta, but it's different. And now you have to put more effort. If someone's doing this as a side hustle, as you know, changing you know, changing jobs from a different career, they don't have that much time to arrange twenty testers. Like if it had been any another number, like five, so, three. So yeah, well, so that, that so when I want to keep this constructive, right? So okay. you know, wave the magic wand. You are now in charge of the Google Play Store. What what does support indie developers? Is it a is it another tier of account that enables people to do it? Is it is it a like how how can they achieve the goal that they're going for of of making you know ensuring high quality apps mm -hmm. in Google Play and safety, but also support indie developers and burgeoning beginning developers? What what how would you change this? 
So and that's 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 actually Ron. That's a great question because I'm a little stunned because I I have been in Google feedback sessions and without saying anything that I'm not supposed to, they have a lot of great efforts to try to increase uh, app quality through number one automated means. Like you know we talked about the um, SDK scanning where you know they'll just check on what SDKs are using to make sure there's no malware. They you know will actually surface. So another like I think positive enforcement is better than negative enforcement. So we talked actually last year about if your app is well tuned to large screens. You get higher visibility, you get higher scores, you know, and I, and they're, they're talking about surfacing local content, regional content. I, I do think that there is something there to, you know, elevating high quality rather than this is, this is not even, you know, demoting bad quality. This is just, I, I would say things like that. And then also like, and it, and it could be something as like, you know, for a new dev. Yeah. There's so many tools like, you know, various different reports for accessibility, you know, uh, reporting of ANRs, which is freezing of your screen and all kinds of things that, you know, if anything, if a if, track whether how much, a, like how quickly and how thoroughly someone responds to those reports, because all this is automated. So you can honestly see like what percentage of report a user, a, a developer, sorry, rather addresses within a certain period of time, give them a little bump or at least don't block them or, or don't or, or, prevent or, them from doing or some proactive yeah. kind of label that says this is not yeah. a, you know, like, you know, this, does, this doesn't yes. qualify or whatever, or, or not, not, yeah. not to neg them, but to make it clear to the users yeah. what kind of app this is. I don't know. Michelle, Michelle, yeah. what would, what would you do? You know, being as close as you are to this stuff too. Yeah. I think one thing that might be constructive would be to have like a different tier. So like if you're a student, right. And you have a student email address, mm-hmm. perhaps when you sign up for Google play, you can sign up for like an educational account that lets you, you know, publish something like a student project, right? Maybe you might have limited access to publishing it globally. You can only publish it within like one country or maybe even one region in your state. Same thing for like local apps. Like, um, like I was like helping my uncle look for like prayer times um, in this one local mosque. And I realized that, wait, this mosque has an app? And I'm like, who would use this? Only people who live in the city of Houston or like the state of Texas might ever download this app. So maybe like allow these really, really tiny entities who would like, have no way to get 20 beta testers to like limit their apps say like okay if you want full global availability you have to have 20 beta testers you have to have a duns number you have to have all this but like if you're just publishing for a very small number of people you're a student you're a researcher an academic institution maybe there should be some kind of ways to get around that Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like verified, verified students. Yeah, student, yeah. student access. I think is great. I think, um, honestly, I think. I mean, if you're an indie developer, make them get the duns. That's fine, right? It, like, I think that 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 uh, you know that still does it. But then have some sort of parameters around. Like, I'm a sole proprietor. I'm an individual. You know, like I need give me five testers, but then you need a longer testing period, or you need to, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of barrier to entry. Like this, this just seems like they built the wall too high, right? And you yeah, need a couple, like, you need a couple of uh, a couple of other doors lower to the ground. So yeah. yeah. Um, and I will say, just personally speaking, the first thing that I so I, it was really funny because in their support section about trying, how do you find, you know testers they mentioned oh example if you're starting to try to start a crossfit app go to your local gym and find people to test okay <laughs> okay so i i'm i'm right now uh fun employed and my goal was to actually work on a fitness app you know how hard it would be for me to find 20 testers all of my fitness fam not all of them but a vast majority of my fitness fam are ios developers so based and, and my husband I, I, I gave my, my husband this big grant. He also was very sad about this. And he said, you know what? 
unironically, you should just write your fitness app in iOS. And that's kind of, I mean, there's already like a inclination to do iOS first in uh, in development circles. Like it's just easier. You'll get more return. And at this point, you'll get less friction. So it's just, it just feels like a shooting of one's own foot it, for nothing, for not, for, for no, I, I will, I will freaking eat my hat if this actually has substantive, you know, impact on indie personal account, developer account app quality, because there's no accountability. There's no, I, it's, it's dumb. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to say that it's dumb and all the reasons why, but like, I, like, I think it is important, you know, especially in case anybody at Google's listening to like say, Hey, listen, there are alternatives. There are other ways to do this. There are other, yes. there are other entities out there that we want to see being able to develop apps and promote and, 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 add to this platform that honestly after Amazon Huawei now is bleeding <laughs> it is losing and so it's yeah. like um, yeah, it and- just it just seems like it's and and uh, but what what could be interesting also is I think some folks mentioned this in in, in the comments on Michelle and your post on on Twix um, and also some folks are saying here in the chat thing is will we see the emergence of testing pools? Like, is this, yes. is this a new, is this a new potential business? Like, there you go. Someone looking for a business, something they want to exactly. do, build, build up idea. a way to like get Android testers, right? Like that's actually, I mean, when, maybe we should talk about that offline. That's, we should just that, do that. That's actually really I mean, interesting. <laughs> it, it is. And I, I, I do think that it's actually fun and would be good. It, it, so that, yeah. so that in and of itself is great for indie and starting out developers, I will say from the Google perspective, though, unless, again, unless they're actually following up and making sure that you aren't just, again, starting 20, 20 yeah. accounts, that for them, this, this, this doesn't mean anything. They basically put out a requirement without any evidence or numbers that this will impact indie dev quality. Right. But yes, it, otherwise, no, that's a great idea. Actually, yeah, just we just should, we that. should talk offline about that. Actually, not that I think about that's, it because that's, like, that's actually not hey. a bad idea at all. So anyway, um, all right. Well, we're, we're running super long as it is, and we're not even through the second yeah, news. Sorry, story. Guys. So it's just, uh, <laughs> but I know you can go I, on and on about this, but when, like, I, I think it's so <laughs> respectful for you. Or, I have so much respect for you as a developer to like your first reaction is identifying the fact that like, oh, wow, up and coming developers and indie devs, this is bad for them um and you know and hopefully they, they, google makes a change or or try to um uh, yeah. swap it around so <sighs> burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Wow. All right. Already, I'm, there's a lot we've talked about already. Frolicking we're, we're, we're like 40 I, I minutes into the show. All right, well, so real quickly, get through the rest of the news here. Um, uh, it's been a while since we talked about uh, messaging and RCS and things like that, uh, but it looks like uh, Google, in their effort to try to get Apple to open up iMessage, now is turning to uh, what is sometimes a foe, sometimes the, a friend, uh, the EU. Uh, Google is making a complaint to the uh, to the EU under the Digital Markets app. Um, they co-signed a letter uh, that argues that iMessage uh, should be designated a core platform service under the EU's Digital Markets Act, uh, act uh, which would then make it be interoper- interoperable with other messaging services, which, I mean... This could be seen as a loophole, but I mean, there's enough people with iPhones and on iOS devices around the world that are using iMessage where messaging is a core functionality and therefore should be interoperable. This is exactly what they um, what they're they're talking about. Um, and I was going to use this later in the show, but um, but we do have a quote, and I'm excited to share this with everybody as we have a special guest, Mr. Hiroshi Lockheimer uh, from Google, uh, who said um, that uh, Apple's iMessage lock-in is a documented strategy um, that he posted on Twitter last year. He said, using peer pressure and bullying as a way to sell products is disingenuous for a company that has humanity and equity as a core part of its marketing. The standards exist today to fix this. Um, so that was Hiroshi last year on the topic. And thanks uh, to Burke, uh, to our good friend Burke and Victor back at our old friend's twit for providing Hiroshi's talking head. Uh, so if you're watching the video, uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. If you're listening to the audio, go back and watch the video. You'll get a laugh. Um, we're going to hear from Hiroshi later on in the show too. Um, but so, I don't know, what, uh, Michelle, what do you think? Is this, is, this a, is, this a, is this a fair tactic or is this them trying to like uh, manipulate the, the EU to doing what they want? I mean, it's absolutely in Google's best interest to pursue this route because really, like, what besides marketing campaigns, throwing money and trying to convince people to, you know, put pressure on Apple to open up iMessage, the best, the only one that can really do it, like, right now is is regulators in, like, Europe. And they're the ones who seem keen on actually doing it. Like, they are the ones who wrote the Digital Markets Act, which is really doing, make forcing Apple to do things they do not want to do. Like, enabling sideloading. The EU is also the one who forced Apple to add a USB-C port. Like the EU is really pushed the, a lot of meaningful change the, on Apple that they don't want to do. The EU gets shit done. Like, like, like say, say what you will with the <laughs> EU, whether you, whether you agree <laughs> with it or not. The, the EU definitely does make change happen for better or for worse. So good, good for them. Um, while we're on this topic, though, um, our good friends over at Nothing announced that they're bringing iMessage to the Nothing phone. 
um, which may make you say, huh? How, how do they do that? Um, but uh, nothing announced that Nothing Chats, uh, their, their messaging app, uh, will let owners of the Nothing Phone 2 send iMessages to iPhones. Um, and basically what they're doing is they're building, um, uh, they're leveraging a, 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 the architecture known as Sunbird uh, to enable this to happen, which it's basically doing similar to Beeper, similar to other solutions that we've seen by this, routing your messages to a server farm of, of, of Mac Mini that are then routing your messages via their platform. So like, it's not like iMessage is now compatible on Android or working on the nothing phone only. They're taking the same tactic that we've seen other iMessage kind of uh, circumventing tools uh, have been taking, but doing it in an adoptive on the OS, uh, you know, supported by the manufacturer kind of manner, um, which is a good way to try to reach out to people. So good on nothing for trying to bridge this gap as well, too. So. That a- by the way, a farm of Mac Minis to make this happen is brilliant, low low tech, low rent, and awesome. It, but it's also ridiculous and crazy. Very yeah, helpful. and also unfortunately, in order for this to even work, you have to sign into your iCloud account. You have to give them access to your iCloud account. So it's kind of uh, something I would not do personally if I had an iCloud account with a lot of stuff on it. Fortunately, I don't, so I could just create a burner account and let them have it and just use that for iMessage. But uh, if you have a lot of stuff, I would, you know, consider maybe not doing it because uh, Sunbird is a, is a startup. Like, we don't, they do promise that they are, at least your messages are end-to-end encrypted, and they promise they're not using your data for anything. But, like, still, is it a risk that you really want to take? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like I have an iCloud account that I never use, right? Like I, I've no, like I, I have it because I have a Mac and I don't use it at all. So I have no exposure there. So your mileage may vary. If you have a lot of stuff there, you may not want, you know, you want to be careful about how you're doing that, handling that connection. And I guess we'll see more testing and stuff like that will come with this as we look into what they're doing. Um, but real quickly, um, speaking of nothing, uh, they also announced their Black Friday event is coming uh, starting November 17th. It's that time of year, everybody. This Friday, in fact, um, they're going to be offering their their biggest deal, their first ever Black Friday event. Uh, running from November 17th to November 27th, getting huge savings uh, uh, on that. And basically, also, if you had purchased the year two or the phone two, um, uh, anybody who purchased that at full price will get a partial reimbursement once the sale begins. So they're doing kind of retroactive sales, which is kind of crazy, um, which is nice to see. But uh, they're not the only ones out there. Google also announced their Black Friday deal start in one day. Actually, their start their start on, on November 16th, one day ahead of nothing. Um, so you've been on the fence for getting a Pixel 8 or a Pixel 8 Pro or Google Pixel Watch 2. They're all going to be on sale. Um, uh, not not super dramatically, but you can save $150 on the Pixel 8. Um, you get the Pixel tablet for $100 off, uh, $200 off the Pixel 8 Pro. So some deals to be had as Black Friday is looming. Um, so if you're shopping for yourself or for loved ones, um, you might want to get in there and get out on it. Um, but this is just never ending. Oh my gosh. Uh, so there's even more news to be had, isn't there? So. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So the, as we've talked about extensively last week, the <laughs> Google V Epic trial or Epic V Google trial is ongoing. And this week we have the big man himself, Sundar Pichai take the stand as well as Hiroshi Lockheimer. And, uh, you know, to be honest, if you really want to have the play-by-play, the exact details of things that were revealed, things that were revealed but they weren't supposed to be revealed, <laughs> and uh, so on and so forth, I highly recommend checking out Sean Hollister's 
uh, play-by-play over at The Verge because he talks about you know every single detail. He's actually at the trial covering it live. Uh, we we plebes here are at home. We're only getting what's being said uh, through a third party. But uh, you know, it, it is interesting to consider like what's really at stake here because yeah. so let's take Google's side of the argument for example, right? Like Epic is trying to basically show that Google is a monopolist. They're using their stranglehold on Android to illegally enforce a monopoly and cut out competition from app stores and other app makers and so on. But um, and they're trying to, they're digging through a lot of confidential communications at Google to relay that. Like a lot of things have been revealed about the specific revenue sharing agreements, the specific um, distribution terms, the, the specific like amount of money they're giving to Apple or to Samsung, et cetera. And uh, Google's trying to basically say, you know, we do need, like we need to make money off of Android in order to justify the thousands of engineers that we employ to work on it. Because, yeah, Android is open source, but if you don't have a single company working on it to ensure that the app ecosystem is consistent, there's a single app market, all the APIs and all the devices that are running based off of AOSP are compatible with one another, then you might have, like, the fragmentation that we all complain about would be way worse. Like, way, way worse is Google's, like, main thrust of the argument. And they do kind of have a point there. If If you talk about open source software and... Um, a lot. You might have seen that one XKCD comic where there's like a, a giant pillar and like it's all held up by software written by one guy in Nebraska. And imagine like if that one guy in Nebraska just stops developing that software, the entire infrastructure just crumbles. So basically you have this giant company that's behind Android and making sure it is well tested. All the security bugs are patched out. They're working with carriers. They, they have this app distribution model. They have this uh, the app store. They have all these tooling and all that stuff. Like where, what would Android look like if it wasn't led by Google and if it was led by a conglomerate of companies that are all have competing interests? You know, like sure they could they could band together. Linux gets things done, but like there's a lot of operating systems that are based on Linux and they're they don't all have apps that are compatible with one another. So like, what exactly would that look like? Would that be good for the consumer? That's kind of like the argument that like, Google is pushing for that what they're doing, they're them making money off of Google Play is necessary to fund the future of Android and them losing access to that would be detrimental. Yeah, and and as evidenced, you know, so going to The Verge and looking at Sean Hollister's kind of coverage, um, he does provide uh, some great quotes from Mr. Friend of the Show, Hiroshi Lockheimer, um, mm-hmm. who uh, Hiroshi said on the stand, when you sideload, the user has to understand they're taking a risk. We want yeah. users to understand that the apps they're about to sideload haven't gone through the same level of security checks as the apps we run through the Play Store. Um, and so uh, he was very, you know, kind of pushing that message. He also, uh, in a little bit of court theatrics, um, uh, while on the stand, pulled out two phones. He pulled out the Samsung Z Flip and a Pixel fo- <laughs> Fold. Um, and they, he was trying to uh, use them as an example to show how Google is attempting to innovate on Android compared to Apple. Um, so really interesting stuff. Fascinating. We're watching this with bated breath. We're watching the antitrust uh, case with bated breath. Google in the courtroom. It's got, got to be a tense time over in Mountain View right now. So, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So, all right, cool. Well, uh, good thing uh, that we're there on top of it. Um, all right. So that said, nearly an hour into the show, it's time to check in with the patrons, right? Yes. And every every single week, every Monday, we put up three stories for our patron pick of the week. And we let our lovely patrons like this week's patron shout out uh, recipient, Mark Biggie, uh, vote on which story you want us to cover. And 
uh, this t- this was a banner week for Android Faithful because we had a tie. <laughs> We've never had a tie before, leading us to wonder never what do we tie. do. So we're going to talk about it both, right? <laughs> exactly. Got to be fair. So the one story that did lose out, unfortunately, is that is the end of the road for the original Samsung Fold. The Samsung, the OG Samsung Fold, is basically past its prime. It's sh- it hasn't shuffled off the coil, but it certainly won't be receiving any more security updates. But that received twelve percent of the vote. With the remaining 88%, we split between two stories. One, actually, I'll I'll talk about first, which because it's very relevant because it is something that came out of the Epic v. Google. And that is about Google offering Netflix, Netflix a pretty sweet deal uh, way back when. So way in the way back before when Google actually allowed alternate alternate payment methods and systems on in their playground in Google Play. You know, Netflix was, I think, paying... Google three only three percent of its subscription revenue. Of course, things are a lot different now. And there was a video testimony from Netflix VP of Business Development Paul Perryman, who kind of cataloged what happened from those you know Halcyon three percent subscription days to now when you can't even manage your subscription or sign up for Netflix in app. You can still do it on your phone, but it kicks you out to a browser like a lot of different places. And again, that is because of the restriction on. Google Play billing being more or less, it's kind of changing a little bit, but more or less, you know, the way to go in terms of transactions on the Android system. So Perryman basically, you know, um, testified that yes, there originally was 3%, but eventually Google did try to, you know, did for some time basically ban all alternate forms of payment. And for a little while, Netflix was paying that 15% of in-app subscription cut to Google. And of course, Netflix being Netflix, and Netflix being everywhere on every single gaming device, on multi, multi, on multiple media devices everywhere, they they could afford to take their ball, go home, and open their own ball store, which is what they did, you know. And in an effort to keep all of that share, and I think even Perryman, you know, testified that, you know, if they had gone, you know, global uh, Google Play billing, like you know, they they were kind of encouraged to, they would have lost two hundred fifty million dollars a year on signups. So that's kind of why they just said. Uh, F it, I'll, I'll take my ball out of my own ball store. But Google knew how valuable Netflix is. I mean, it's not really hard to see, right? So kind of, again, showing that, yes, Google is, is, is you know, just paying for their own bills and making things happen. But, you know, sometimes they give a discount depending on who you are, what you make, and how much they like you. Between the time when Netflix was going ahead and eating that 15% service fee to basically saying, never mind, we'll just kick the, per- kick the users out to a browser, Netflix was offered by Google a 10% discounted rate on the condition that Netflix have a, quote, full commitment to Google Play billing globally. And obviously, Netflix being who they were and us knowing how Google Play billing can be, that was less than desirable. They're going to take that $250 million dollars. And, you know, inconvenience users just a little bit. But that was something that came out of the testimony and goes along with, again, this idea that Google is just trying to be relevant, be there and get and and play with all the big kids in in an effort to kind of maintain their, you know, monolithic play Google play billing well, I don't know. efforts. I, I don't, yeah. I mean like th- this got a lot of hay coming out of it because, you know, cause before this, it was revealed that Spotify had a sweet, had a, had a sweetheart deal yeah. of their own. I mean, this is just business development, right? Like I don't, I don't, I don't fault Google by doing this in any way, shape or form. They see, they see a hot, a hot app and a lot of, you know, like a, a market leader, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, and this was back in 2017, right? Which is, you know, like yeah. h- half a decade ago at this point. But um, it makes sense to be like, okay, great. You know, we know that Apple's taking 
percent, we're going to get offer you ten percent. Like we're trying to be yeah. competitive in that way, and good on Netflix for running the numbers and realizing that, like, oh, actually, they'll still lose money, and it's not not good for them. And not, nothing says you need to take the deal, uh, but I don't fault anyone for offering the deal. You know? So. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't feel struck like that. This is evil by any yeah. means, but you know, and and to be fair to Google, and we covered this on the old show. There, there are ways of getting reduced discounts to like 10% now with their weird ecosystem flow chart of like, you know, whether you're part of this program and whether you're a developer that has less than X million in sales. So again, it's just something that came out. And so all, all the, we're seeing all the strings and all the, the business dealings. Like nothing you said, better about. than a public trial to, to get stuff out. You know? <laughs> to bring all yeah. that stuff. Okay. Well, to go into something a little more positive and a less litigation y, uh, the other winner this week with the other 44% of the vote was a story about Gboard with a great new feature, which I actually tried out on my phone because if you are a Gboard beta tester and you've, kind of notice that on phones, when you happen to turn your phone into landscape mode, maybe you're playing a game and you want to do use the game in chat, you'll notice that the a phone landscape keyboard is a thing of unbelievable inconvenience. It's usually this long, stretched out keyboard at the bottom, very hard to use. And it's been a, that way for a really long time. But if you're using the latest Gboard version 6.60, I think, what will happen now is that if you're on a phone... And in landscape, rather than having that really stretched out, very inconvenient to use G board at the bottom, you'll now get the floating G board panel that you can move and, you know, resize a little bit, I think. Um, and there you go. So you don't have to kind of, you can kind of make typing a little bit more convenient. Um, this is specifically for phone landscape. Uh, so on my Pixel Fold, if I, you know, using Gboard beta, if I turn landscape, I do now instantly see as I, as the phone starts to, you know, rotate everything, the Gboard just pops up into a nice window and then kind of docks again when I turn back to portrait. If I'm on a tablet sized landscape screen, like the inside of a pixel fold, it's still just like the big, huge, like split keyboard thing. So for those of you who just need to use your phone uh, in landscape mode, Gboard beta has got something good for you and hopefully saving you some stretching in your fingers. My main question is, it's 2023. Why did it take this long? <laughs> That's a great... I don't know. Yeah. There's, I don't know. Yeah. I could have sworn they were testing this before. I, I could have sworn like I saw a flag for this like years ago. And I guess it's just now rolling out. It it is really weird how we 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 had a really we had we were really good we had a really good tester on our team Eric who was always good at testing this stuff and then it p not all PMs but some PMs just like pushing that stuff back because yeah. just not important not important not important who's using the phone in landscape mode and typing yeah somebody um, in the chat cousin Ajah in the chat chat room recalls a keyboard app that I, I looked at years ago called Minium. Uh, that took that was like a minimal, very minimalist keyboard app uh, that that took up a lot less of the screen. I forget how Minium handled landscape though, but uh, even though, despite how it was, but yeah, I miss keyboard apps. I feel like Gboard came in and just killed that whole. Yeah. You know, like when you when you had a clever like there were the keyboards that were like circles and like they're all all different kind of takes on keyboards. Those are fun. So, and that's an Android special, by yeah. the way, based on the IMM six system. Exactly. You know, so. So, um, so go over to patreon.com slash Android faithful, sign up to be a Patreon, uh, a Patreon patron to help support the show. We thank everybody, but we especially thank us when, as you mentioned, we want to thank Mark Biggie, uh, this I'm week's Biggie. patron shout out. Uh, thank you for supporting the, sh the show. Um, we're starting at the beginning, the people who signed up first. So, uh, if you signed up back in the summer, you're going to get thanked first. Uh, if you're signing up this week, you have to wait a little bit, but we'll get to everybody. So, uh, thank you, Mark. Um, so that's going to wrap up the news after an hour. <laughs> so let's get let's, sorry, you guys. Let's get into hardware. It's a busy week, and and I gotta say, I felt like um, on any other week, 
the humane AI pin uh, was going to be the thing that we were talking about the most um, on, on the show. Um, but I got to tell you, this was something that I was so excited about when I saw it come out because it's just bonkers. And I'm sure everyone's seen it at this point. Um, but basically, a, co- a company called Humane, uh, which is made up of former Apple employees and Apple designers, developed a device called the AI pin, which is a, uh, essentially a displayless smartphone um, that you wear on your chest similar to a Star Trek communicator. This is the first step close to the Star Trek reality I want to live in. Um, it costs $699 in addition to like a 20, I think a $24 a month subscription fee or, or like service fee through T-Mobile to, to service the, the device itself. Um, and you clip the pin to your chest, like the Star Trek communicator, and you can use it to, uh, take photos. There's a little camera on there. You could use a virtual assistant. You can, uh, use gestures and actually send messages and talk and things like that. And it's all done via this pin, um, which is mind blowing because you're like, well, it doesn't have a display. What does it do? And I'm trying to find uh, uh, on our video show, I'm trying to uh, show up an example of it. But essentially, um, what you do is it has a green laser. There you go. I found it. Uh, It has a green laser that when you hold your hand out in front of the display, it projects the display onto your hand that you can then interact with um, via uh, a pinching. uh, They don't like to call it pinching, though. They had a different term. Um, But uh, through a pinching mechanism. Um, And there are all these different hand gestures that basically show how you you get through the the UI. And and in the video show here, we're showing the example of someone changing the the song uh, that they're listening to. Um, It connects to your headphones wirelessly. Um, You can talk to it. It, It's it's a way that you can handle through uh, phone calls and things like that. it is just bananas and bonkers. And if it wasn't $700 and $25 a month, I'd be all over it. But it's a little expensive for my taste. Um, when you take a picture, the little light goes on to show people that you're taking a picture because, you know, we want to be respectful in that regard. Um, but why are we talking about it here? Because when I saw this news came out, I was like, oh, man, I want to talk about it on the show, but I'm not sure that we'll be able to. Um, but lo and behold, uh, as we found out, uh, Marvin Bernal posted on threads that uh, Humane is looking for a senior software engineer uh, for a job listing in San Francisco. Um, and one of the job requirements or, or the description includes work along our work alongside our system software team to tightly integrate and customize our usage of Android OS AOSP. So Humane is running Android. And therefore, we can talk about Wait it on the a show. Second. It's all Android. <laughs> Always has me. <laughs> I don't know. What do, what do you guys think of the, of the AI pin? Do you think that this is the future, or what? Do you, or do you think it's no. no? I think it is. I think we are moving in this direction, but we're way too early. We're way too early in, in the L, in the LLM phase to be able to have a device pinned to your chest and relying on the information. You, you got to start somewhere, man. We already saw in their announcement, it made two mistakes. Like they got the trajectory of the next, I think solar or lunar eclipse wrong. And they also like scanned, like they scanned like some almonds and they tried to tell you how many grams of protein is in it. And like they estimated incorrectly. So like it's already, you shouldn't be relying on the output of LLMs right now without at least verifying the output yourself. And to do that, you kind of need a smartphone. And another thing that I've always argued on the show in the past is that 
like the way we're interacting with generative AI is through apps and services that we already use. This kind of relies on you just, you know, talking to ChatGPT and kind of using whatever information it gives you. Like it's, how is it interacting with, with your Google Calendar? What if you're using Outlook? What if you're using YouTube Music? What if you're using uh, Gmail? What if you're using like Uber? You know, like it's not really integrating with all these services. And because it's all auditory and like a limited visual data set, right? There's a lot that you can't do right now with it. And like, I, I believe there's even like a web interface that you have to access on your phone to get some information that can't be shown on this display, which kind of defeats the purpose of a Well, yeah, like you, t- you take you take pictures with the device, but then you need to go to the web to look at the pictures that you took with the device. Like it's, it's like, I feel, I feel like if this was, if this was a complimentary, similar to the, a wearable to a watch, if this was complimentary mm-hmm. to a smartphone, that it was a way for you to interact with your existing smartphone as an extension of it when you don't want to take out your phone, when you don't want to be in a situation, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, I, I, you know, I, so I agree with you. I think it's missing a piece of it. I think the AI thing is a little overblown. Um, but I got to say the green laser projection and the hand gestures like this is like we joked about foldables like five, six years ago about the idea of like a display that will roll up and go in your pocket. And like now here we are. They're real. So it's got to start somewhere, I say. Yeah, I would like to see something more. I mean, maybe this is inherently inaccessible or bad for accessibility, but people with, you know, mobility uh, issues or with reduced vision are not going to have a good time with this, but maybe this is the start of something new. And again, like I, I agree, I, I'm, I'm not going to buy it, but this might inspire or just lead the way to something that actually will change the way we interact with, you know, information, data, and our technology. Yeah. So who knows? Got to start somewhere. That's what I say. Innovation's got to start, start somewhere. somewhere. So a bravo to them. Yeah. And hey, it's running Android. So <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on to some more realistic hardware. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so for things that we actually have to, to in this day and age, and that people do actually buy, we saw a little bit of a teaser, but now we've got a leaky peaky at the OnePlus Watch. We've got full 5K renders based off of test uh, p- images from a testing prototype of the watch of the OnePlus Watch Two, and you know, we'll we can tell a few new things about it. Number one, it's got a 1.43 inch AMOLED display. It's got a circular dial, metal chassis, and some buttons to the right um it will be rocking apparently the snapdragon w5 gen 1 and yeah look pretty straight I mean, and uh, rumors are where os4 but um yeah that's what we got they're very you know very high fidelity renders and of course even if it is you know based on you know an actual device testing prototypes things might change between now and release but you kind of have a decent look i mean it's kind of hard to tell like maybe whether the bands will change but right now we've got some very straightforward uh, silicon straps in black and white. Um, I got. I got to say, yeah. as I've been trying to shop to find a a, a new band for my uh, Pixel Watch Two that that doesn't look mm-hmm. awful, these look really nice. I, I'm I'm intrigued by this for sure. So I'm all for like straightforward silicon bands. If I did wear wearables, yeah. yeah I right now I got a new band. Um, it's like a nylon Velcro, and I don't care that it doesn't look that good, but it's the most comfortable kind of band. Oh, is it really? I always yeah. get these kind of bands. love it. Yeah, like I can wear it all day to sleep and like not feel like I got to readjust the size or anything. Yeah. So cool. Well, it's good to see that uh, OnePlus just continues to uh, to be topical, right? The OnePlus 12 is coming out soon. We're, we're still, we're, I'm seeing every article about the OnePlus Open saying it's the best foldable on the market and all that sort of stuff. Everybody seems to be loving it. So One, having OnePlus a good year. is on a roll. Sexy, and just to think that like a year ago, we're like, what's up with OnePlus? Where, where are they going? <laughs> they settled yeah. and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
And especially coming from their first gen watch, the OnePlus watch was kind of derided at launch mm-hmm. because it ran at proprietary RTOS and it, it did not do a lot of like functionality. It didn't have a lot of apps. It, it was basically just the glorified sleep tracker and like notification <laughs> mirror. Like uh, the, to put it generously, it was not, it was not very good. Yeah, so. But this one looks like it's going to be a lot better. Hopefully. hopefully. So excited to see it. All right. Uh, so Michelle, what's going on with Samsung? So Samsung, you know, is getting on the generative AI train. And this week they detailed their Galaxy AI branding, which is set to debut in next year's Galaxy S24 series. They they didn't say specifically Galaxy S24 series, but they said debuting next year. And, you know, we know what's coming next year. Um, So this Galaxy AI comprises their comprehensive mobile AI experience. And it's going to be using their on-device AI um, that's both running on-device on on Samsung devices and as well as cloud-based. And one feature they showed off in their announcement is a AI live translate call, which would be built into their proprietary dialer app. Samsung says that with this feature, that audio and text translations will appear in real time as you speak, and that the translations ha- all happen on device. We've seen features like this before, but they've generally not been very good. They've been kind of slow. So I'm kind of interested in seeing if Samsung has nailed the performance, like if this will really be real time or close to real time, because that's kind of the issue. Like Sam- Google has live caption for calls. Google also have live translate. They haven't married the two together yet for, to do live translate in calls. And in my experience, Google's live translate on their pixel is kind of laggy. Like it takes a few seconds for it to actually catch up with what's, what's being said. So if Samsung can nail this, then it'll be a really neat feature. But apart from um, the AI live translate, Google uh, Samsung also showed off its own generative AI model called Gauss. And this Generative AI model runs locally on device and is expected to be integrated onto the Galaxy S24 series. We don't know like how many parameters it's going to be running, if it's going to be like a thin version of this um, large language model. But they do say that it's, it's going to be able to do things like generate, edit images, compose emails, summarize documents, and even operate as a coding assistant. So a lot of the things that we already see, you know, BARD and ChatGPT do, Google, uh, Samsung says that they're bringing this on device in their next flagship device. And uh, they also tease that it can enable smarter device controls when it's integrated into products. So maybe this will let you like control things on device, like with your Bixby smart um, devices or like even functionality on your Samsung device, like various settings, things like that. It's the kind of thing where this AI stuff is is like you got to be in the game, right? Whether we like yeah. it or not. Table right, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is you know, so I mean, at this point, Samsung is almost lagging behind Google in this regard. So, like, they're you know, obviously, like they've 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 got to catch up, uh, you know, with with this. So we'll we'll see, um, but not 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 a surprise. Um, all right. Well, lastly, a bit of a bit of sad news because Michelle, I know you were really excited about this. In fact, you were uh, back when we were predicting uh, Google announcement stuff. You wanted this to be included in those announcements, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, doesn't look like satellite phone uh, connections are going to be a thing anytime soon. At least when it comes to Iridium and Qualcomm. Um, so Qualcomm ended its partnership, uh, with the satellite communications company, Iridium. Um, Iridium said that, uh, quote, the company successfully developed and demonstrated the technology. Um, but smartphone makers quote, have not included the technology in their devices, leading Qualcomm to end the agreement. Um, so it's a real bummer if you were hoping for satellite technology to be in your phones. Um, Michelle, do you think this means it will never happen or is this just a bump in the road? Hold up. There is a silver lining. If you actually, if you read Qualcomm's statement to CNBC, yep. they mentioned specifically that the reason why smartphone makers weren't interested in Qualcomm solution was that it was proprietary. 
and that smartphone vendors are more interested in a standards-based solution. So it's kind of good news, actually, that, you know, smartphone makers didn't jump on board with the proprietary implementation. It, it kind of signals that they're all waiting for something to be standardized and released so that maybe all smartphone makers can interoperably, like, communicate with satellites so that there's not just one one-to-many, like, Apple solution is proprietary right now. And if they move to a standards-based solution, then all devices could communicate, send emergency SOS messages to satellites. And I don't know exactly what that'll look like or what kind of hardware needs to be integrated into devices or what exactly needs to be updated in Android to support that. But I always, you know, applaud when a standard is implemented rather than something proprietary because it For means sure. that more device makers can make use of it. Yeah, and and that, that's actually a really great point. And hopefully we'll see it sooner rather than later because that's that's kind of like the next the next frontier, right? Like what is beyond, like let's, let's go beyond the, the, the networks and the 5g and stuff like that, go to satellite and then, you know, let's see how we can leverage that. So, um, cool. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up hardware. Um, and we're going to see, we got some app news to talk through, uh, before we get to your emails on this extra long version of Android faithful. Um, uh, first off is exciting news for foldable owners, right? Michelle. Yeah. So before Android 14, um, apps weren't able to make use of both sides of a display on a foldable phone. You know, most foldables have two displays, but typically apps can only show their content on the inner or the outer display and not both. Well, in Android 14, there's actually an update to an API that makes it possible for apps to do just that. We kind of saw this already when Google rolled out the dual screen interpreter mode for the Pixel Fold with this Android 14 update. But what Google didn't say was that this actually makes use of an API, of an API that's available to all applications. So to take advantage of this, OEMs have to implement something called the Jetpack Window Manager Extension Module. Drink. And that this gives <laughs> this gives apps available uh, access to additional displays on foldable devices. And then apps that use the Jetpack Window Manager Library can take advantage of what's shown content on both displays. Right now, I tested the Pixel Fold and the Galaxy Z Fold 5 on Android 14, and both of them support this new rear and dual display mode. Hopefully, as other foldable devices um, get updates to Android 14. They also add support for this feature. Well, if if anything, and here we're looking at the photo on the Android Police article of being able to use the back camera as a selfie yeah. camera with using the front display as a viewfinder. Like that's the. I remember being at the OnePlus Open event. Uh, Michelle and hearing like there was a, a very very animated group of people who have been guests on the show discussing the fact that you can't open up the fold, use that amazing Hasselblad camera as a selfie camera, and see what you're actually taking a picture of with the front with the front one. So uh, that's that's the killer app right there for this. Right? So um, and of course it's it's Jetpack, right? So yeah, <laughs> I think when you're you're muted, but you're. Uh... <laughs> You Sorry, wanted yeah. about Jetpack. No, well, actually, I'm friends with the gentleman who was actually cleaning up this API for public use. So he actually did mention he worked on the dual screen interpreter. Uh, oh, no, he worked on the selfie camera demo for IO. Uh, and I've been trying to get him on the show to talk about working on it. Um, he's being a little shy. He's recovering from a medical procedure. So I told him I'd bug him in the new year. But he did say he he's they, they had it for a while, but they were cleaning it up for, you know, the rest of us, you know, uh, un, unwashed developer masses to get their hands on it. So uh, yeah, I'll try really hard to get him on the show to talk about it because I'm excited. I have a lot of ideas. I won't be able to publish them to the Play Store, but I'll work on them still. Oh, we, Maybe do a with our beta. with our new service. We'll get you the testers you need. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Yeah. So <laughs> first customer. <laughs> All right. Um, and so Michelle, there's some more generative AI news, isn't there? You're like on the AI beat today, man. Yeah. Drink, drink, yeah. drink yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, the Google Home app is getting a lot of generative AI features to help you create automations for managing your smart home. So some of these include, um, well, first, this is not AI related, but the Google Home app itself is getting expanded controls for devices like fans, so you can control their rotation and speed. You'll also be able to see more data from sensors in your home. This capability is coming to users soon in the public preview program for the app. Um, what's more interesting is the script editor feature is adding a new help me script feature that uses generative AI to help you create automations. So um, say you want to create an automation when it's sunset, you want to turn on your lights and close the blinds. If you enter that prompt into the help me script feature, the tool will automatically generate a script that you can then customize and apply to your specific home. So this feature is available now for users who are in the app's public preview. I personally haven't really used a script editor yet. Like I like one of the things I want to do more is I have so many smart home devices at home and Google home. And like, I want to make more use of it. And I feel like this will be a really helpful step forward. Cause like figuring out the interface, having set up routines and automations kind of annoying. So just saying, I want to do this, make a script for me and just apply it. That'd be really nice to do. Uh, there are a couple other things that are being added. The script editor now lets you use camera events like package delivered alerts and starters. You can also create custom notifications. Um, another thing that's being added in the Google home app is you can have new starters and actions for household routines so that you can, you can build routines that start whenever someone is in a specific room. For example, every night at 10 p.m., you can have your blinds closed, the light gradually dim, humidifier set the uh, humidity level, doors lock, and et cetera, all as part of one, anima- one automation. And then lastly, the home panel feature that first debuted on Pixel phones with the June 2023 Pixel feature drop is now available for other devices running Android 14. So I checked, and it's already available on my OnePlus 11 and Nothing Phone 2. And uh, if you're watching the video feed, you can see on the left what this home panel actually is. On, on the left, I have a OnePlus Open running Android 13, and that's using the old device controls interface. So it's kind of just like a bunch of tiles that are not really like organized in, a, in any coherent way. There's just a bunch of tiles, and like they all show the same on-off state or just a slider. But on the right, you have the new home panel activity, which shows you your favorites. It shows you a live feed of your doorbell. And like it copies the same interface that you have in the Google Home app. So this new home panel interface is uh, just much more, I guess, just, it's a lot better for managing it's, your smart home it's, devices. And it's access. It's a lot more intuitive. Well, it's a lot more. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot more intuitive. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a and, much needed update for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this home panel feature is accessed by opening the device controls interface. So you tap the lock screen shortcut or the quick settings tile. And that's how you access this new home panel feature. Cool. The home panel interface. All right. So if you you are a Google homeowner, uh, some cool stuff there for sure. All right. Um, Well, that's all the stuff. Uh, We actually had to do some live cutting of stuff for time. So we might might revisit some stuff next week. But we do want to make sure we hear from you, um, the audience. Uh, If you email us at contact at androidfaithful.com, we'd love to hear from you. We've been getting so many emails back from folks, um, which is awesome. So please keep them coming. Um, And... That's going to tee up our first email, which I think, Michelle, we just want to, we're making you work tonight, Michelle. So there you go. So. <laughs> yeah. So our first email comes from a gentleman, a person named Isaiah. Uh, we don't know where they're from, but um, they sent an email saying, hey, Android Faithful crew, been loving the show and decided to finally write in. How do y'all keep track of so many tabs open at once? I treat my browser as a queue for interesting links to look in, look more into, but I can't imagine having more than three or four tabs open, including my search engine's homepage. As soon as I'm done with something, the tab either gets closed or, if necessary, I save the link to my notes before closing it. Would love to know more how you guys keep track of all those tabs. P.S. Shout out to Michelle. I always have a small laugh when it's Michelle's turn to share where to find him, and the answer is everywhere. 
That's true. I am everywhere. <laughs> but Michelle, Thanks you Isaiah you for sending in the email. So so uh, we've got more emails on this topic about uh, browser tabs and the fact that our next batch of emails go into it. But uh, last week's episode kind of started it started the fire as we yeah. revisited the topic of how many tabs you have open on your device. But Michelle, again, you shared you, you shared with folks how, did, how you manage it. Right? Exactly. So what was that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've been using Chrome's tab groups feature. So whenever I like I'm opening, I'm researching something like and I have a whole tab, a bunch of tabs open related to that research topic. I label it as a tab group, like, say, you know, Android 14 lock screen API, or whatever. Right. I, I named that tab group as that. And I have it open. Um, if I if I can get to it immediately and I write something on it, like and put notes on it, then I'll keep that tab group open. Otherwise, I'll use an extension called one tab and then I'll close that tab group. And at one, the one cool thing that one tab does is it actually preserves that tab group. So that that tab group that I named and saved, it gets saved as its own category in one tab. So whenever I want to revisit it, I just restore all the tabs, and it opens a new Chrome window with all those tabs and that tab group restored. So that's how I organize my tabs. There's an, there's another uh, application that I tinkered with a while back called Workona. Uh, W-O-R-K-O-N-A, um, which is a similar kind of tab management uh, tool, uh, basically tab manager and spaces in it, and it does work on Android as well. Um, so you might want to look into Workona as well in, in addition to OneTab. So um, cool one. Um, but in terms of the tabs, this the, now this is the amusing part of the show. So, so, so uh, buckle up because we got a bunch of emails on this topic. Um, and again, refer to last week's episode um, <laughs> where, uh, where uh, how did it all start up? It, it started out with, um, no, actually two weeks ago, because two weeks ago, we just delayed the lay the background um we had uh peter write in uh who had written into our old show referencing the fact that uh he had a large number of tabs open on his uh, on his phone on chrome um and then that led to brandon writing in last week uh sharing the fact that he had you know 75 to 100 tabs open um and he was reacting to peter um he said you know the guy who had 33 tabs open well this week the responses flew in first up linda wrote in and said i checked my chrome tab on my Pixel 7 Pro and was surprised surprised by this, but 327 tabs. Um, and Ooh. Linda says, love the show. I haven't missed an episode. And she also sent in proof, um, a screenshot of her <laughs> of her Chrome after she closed all 327 tabs. And I zoomed in for our video viewers so you can see proof of this. I think 327 tabs at the moment is the, is the reigning champion. Uh, so congratulations, Linda. But um, Brandon couldn't help himself. And Brandon also wrote in and he said, just over here, roffling, rolling on the floor laughing. He said, my tab count is always the, the smiley face because I have too many. If I recall correctly, once you hit over 100, it becomes a smiley face. Um, although Linda showed 327, so I don't know if they uh, kept the smiley face or not. Um, he said, despite the tab count, I have them organized. Okay, in my own chaotic way, looking into one tab now because I generally have them grouped together in a way that sounds like it will work in a similar way. Okay, I manually counted. I'm at three, what? 315. I may have a problem. Um, so Brandon... 315 is good, but that's not does not beat Linda's 327. So Brandon comes in second. Um, 
But of course, not to be uh, not heard, the original emailer, Peter, did write in to correct Brandon that he had 37 tabs open, not 33, but now he's down to seven. Um, he said it was six until yesterday morning when he Googled synonyms for communication, which I found very funny. So, <laughs> and that came in from Peter. So uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for writing with your tab counts. If you can beat 327 tabs without cheating, without doing it just to beat it, uh, email us in and let us know. Send a screenshot. Um, open up your Chrome, see how many tabs you are without looking, uh, without uh, editing it. So. I feel like we need a bumper for that, a special bumper for like tab yeah, count. Dun, tab dun, count. Dun, dun. Like kind of. <laughs> so. All right. And we got one more email. Yes. And um, I know I did a long grant to earlier um, and my our, our good listener, Kevin from Pittsburgh, is vibing on me this week and has a little rant slash vent of his own. So Kevin writes saying, it seems like it's been a few weeks since you last got an email about Google support or lack thereof. So here's one for you. My Pixel 7 Pro recently started to develop some black spots on the screen. It was working fine, but was slightly annoying, so I decided to pay the $29 to have my screen repaired through Google Preferred Care. They had me go to my local You Break, I Fix location to get a new screen put on. Unfortunately, the repair shop not only couldn't get my new screen put on, but they completely broke the phone. Something about breaking off the connector for the ribbon cable that the screen attaches to... So not only do I have a phone, do I not have a phone for a few days now, but now I also have to pay an additional $99 for a replacement device. I tried to explain to both Assurant and Google, including multiple supervisors, that I didn't want to pay an additional $99 to fix the problem that they caused, but I had absolutely no luck. Doesn't seem like the best way to treat a customer, especially one that has had almost every Nexus and Pixel device over the years. Sorry for the wall of text, but I needed someone to vent to. I can't help but imagine how differently this experience would have been if I had an iPhone instead. Thanks, Kevin from Pittsburgh. That's just bad luck. That's yeah. That's frustrating. That's that super frustrating. Too. I'm really sorry. Dude. Yeah. Sorry that happened. I don't know. There's no. There's no real like recourse there. It's. 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 You, you got a lot of you got a lot of cooks in that kitchen, right? Between between the the uh, the the people who who Google, the people who did the fixing and the breaking, and then Assurant and all that stuff. Uh, it's brutal. It, it sounds more like that place should change its name from "You Break I Fix" to "You Break I Break Two well, yeah, or something. You break, I don't know. We like, break worse more. <laughs> and charge you money. Yeah, it's terrible. No one fix. So sorry, Kevin. We break yeah. no 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 fix. We, we break no one fix. So. Um, I will, I, I am, I am, uh, I will say in terms of the topic of, of broken phones, my wife's, uh, iPhone, uh, screen cracked a little bit. So I'm going to attempt to take it to a genius store and have Apple fix it and see how that goes. Um, uh, I've never done that before. So I'll be curious what it's like on the Apple side of things. So yeah, good luck. yeah we'll see. So yeah, I'm glad that I've only had to go to a repair center once yeah. recently and it was just for replacing the battery on a Pixel 4, okay. and it was really quick. It took like an hour. Yeah. So I went to You Break My Fakes, and they, they replaced it. Well, who knows? So, All right, well, so uh, email us in at contact.androidfaithful.com. We want to hear from you, uh, whether it be your support woes or your tab count or whatever you got or any other kind of fun stuff. Um, love, love, love all the emails and the interaction we've been getting from the audience. You guys are awesome. All right, uh, this show's running super long. Michelle, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me... As our uh, dedicated list reader, Isaiah said, everywhere. <laughs> I am on Twix. I am on Mastodon. I am on Telegram. 
I am on Threads, Reddit, Discord, WeChat, WhatsApp. Weibo? Are you, are you, are you on Weibo? Yeah. <laughs> Not on Weibo yet. That, that, that app is infuriating to use. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you want to support my work, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Rahman, where um, you can be, become a subscriber for $3 a month. And, uh, you know, I post a lot on Twitter, on Twix, everywhere. Like I said, for free, a lot of detailed information takes hours to research. You know, it does uh, a lot of things that a lot of websites don't want to take because it's a lot of technical and a lot doesn't really apply to a lot of people. There's not a lot of ad revenue to get out of it. So uh, if you want to support my work and see that work continue, uh, please consider subscribing. And of course, subscribe to Android Faithful as well. Yeah. And an important question from the chat, Michelle, are you on OnlyFans? Oh, dear. I mean, you could be. <laughs> You know, no, no judgment. No, yeah, just, well, I mean, you don't have to do spicy content on OnlyFans. It could be Android content. I just don't know how much engagement you'll get. So. <laughs> <laughs> could be like a burgeoning like sec, uh, section yeah, on OnlyFans. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, see, see how the tech sector is on there. Anyway, <laughs> Android nerds gone wild. <laughs> Android nerds gone wild. That's a show title. That's a show title. <laughs> All right, uh, when where can folks find you? Well, I am an Android nerd, an Android developer, um, who hopefully one day will maybe one day put out an app of her own. Uh, and you can find talks that I do about Android development on my website, randomlytyping.com. And you can find me most places at Queen Code Monkey and in the Fediverse at Queen Mon- Code Monkey at Mastodon.social. And you are not going to see me for two weeks because I'm going on vacation in Japan where maybe I'll use the dual screen interpreter, even though I kind of speak a little bit of Japanese. I kind of want to practice it a bit. But um, yeah, I'll be missing you guys for the next two weeks, both you, Michelle, and Ron, and our lovely Android Faithful. But maybe um, the showtime is 10 a.m. Japanese Standard Time, so maybe I'll just be regular audience member when if we're not doing anything just be on vacation take a break i know i, know. I, know. <laughs> I don't want to miss some of our we, we, i might just listen we appreciate you that's awesome we're excited for your vacation uh, it's gonna be good we'll Thank miss you. you but we got a couple of good shows lined up um that you're gonna have to watch as a regular regular I I I regular viewer winter dow um uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to co-host <laughs> so um <laughs> Awesome. And finally, uh, while I'm not, uh, while I am as everywhere as Michelle is, I'm not as active as Michelle is, but I'm Ron XO out there on Twitter and uh, Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, Blue Sky, everything. I'm most active on Instagram. Um, but if you're looking for something else to listen to, head over to my other podcast over at ifanboy.com, uh, where we did our monthly media conversation. And I talked about, um, uh, watched a movie recently, Flora, Flora and Son on Apple TV Plus. That was very good. I've been watching The Gold on Paramount Plus. Um, but then we went into a little bit of a, uh, we did a uh, end of the year mailbag with some more emails from our listeners and talked a lot about some holiday movies and specials and stuff like that as the holidays are coming up and that's our favorite time to watch tv um so go to ifanboy.com you can check all that out um and subscribe and listen to that show if you like comic books and movies and tvs and stuff um and then lastly uh head over to androidfaithful.com our very own website where you can subscribe to the show on every imaginable podcast app that's out there um you can find links to to link over to our patreon link over to our socials follow us on instagram Twitter slash X, Mastodon, Threads, Facebook, 
Um, and you can find uh, links to our individual episodes, which all have the video. Um, so if you're an audio listener and you want to watch the video, you can go to andrewfaithful.com. You can watch the, the video replay. It's always fun to watch because um, we, you know, we want to give you every, every imaginable option out there to enjoy Android Faithful um, because we do record the show as our live listeners, our live viewers can attest every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific over on youtube.com slash daily tech news show or twitch.tv uh, slash good day internet. Um, the podcast itself comes out every Tuesday night on the RSS feeds. Um, and we want to thank everybody for listening, watching, subscribing because you're the best because collectively we all are the Android faithful. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.